Hello and welcome to episode 17 of the Precision Microcast. Today we'll be talking about the history of Carl Zeiss, optical profile grinding machines, and our precision problems. Today we're talking about Zeiss. Zeiss is a monolithic company with a monolithic name, and many of our listeners you guys uh, will know Zeiss from common household items, uh, cameras. Sometimes uh, you might see them see the Zeiss name on binoculars. But if you're in the metalworking industry, you might you might have heard the Zeiss name from uh, something like a CMM, a coordinate measuring machine, or an optical microscope. But the company's far far bigger than just those things. Uh, Zeiss is in nearly every single high-tech field, everything from medical imaging with surgical microscopes and ophthalmic equipment to scientific instrumentation and scanning electron microscopes to photolithography equipment for for massive customers like ASML and their EUV machines. Uh, Zeiss most likely has had a, a hand in making all the things that are around you in one way or another. Um, in saying that, it's always interesting to learn about how people have heard about these very large companies. Um, Adam, how did you find out about Zeiss? Uh, industrially, or industrially, uh, it was through their stereo microscopes, but my grandfather had a pair of their binoculars, um, but they were they were pretty beat up. They rode around in his truck for decades, but uh, mm. that was probably like the first Zeiss thing I've ever touched. And, and for me, I, I think the first time I... Yeah, probably the first time I found out about Zeiss was in my very brief uh, phase of wanting to be in the film industry and seeing Zeiss uh, lenses mm. for ARRI equipment. And that was um, that was like a lust-worthy thing, the, the sort of top-tier, best-in-class type, um, type of glass for, for cinematography. So the origins of Zeiss are also fascinating. Carl Zeiss uh, founded the company, his own namesake company, in 1846, a very long time ago. And they specialized in the manufacture of uh, optical microscopes and the associated equipment that goes, goes hand in hand with optical uh, microscopy. Uh, by 1866, they'd had 20 employees and they sold their 1,000th microscope. Keep in mind, this was pre-industrial anything really, or just on the birthing of, of industrialization in Europe. It really, the company takes a very, very sharp turn into for the better, really. Uh, in 1872, when Zeiss hires Ernst Abbe of metrological and optical fame, as well as the chemist Otto Schott, um, both of those names should ring bells in your, in your mind. Um, Abbe is very famous for optical formulas and uh, that we've discussed in, in the EUV episode, but also in metrological principles like the ABBA formula for, for measuring errors. Schott, equally famous, um, there, there, there's a massive company called Schott Aguerre, which is, uh, as we'll dive deeper, owned in, in part by Zeiss still. Uh, but Schott uh, is, is very famous for inventing Zerodua, uh, or the company shot is very famous for inventing and commercializing zero do, which is a, a type of glass or ceramic composite glass that's famous in, in um, high precision 
optics and uh, the two companies Zeiss and Schott they still interact on, on a very very intricate technical level even to this day but in in 1872 when those two hires come in uh, they start revolutionizing the company in technical ways by uh, advancing the optical calculations of the microscopes that Zeiss was Zeiss was manufacturing and getting them really to the next level above their competition and get, giving them a USP. Um, Shot likewise uh, formulates higher and higher qualities of glass that get used in these optics. So up until this point, a lot of microscope development was essentially kind of hand-built, guess and check, and you know, slow iterations where these guys were now coming at it much more deterministically. Is that how I interpret that? Absolutely, yeah. Um, the, there's a saying that Zeiss was uh, Carl, Carl Zeiss was responsible for checking the final QC of each of the microscopes, and um, if he didn't like, I mean, this is how arbitrary this. I mean, it's all a saying or, and a story. But if he didn't like how the optics performed, he'd take out a hammer and smash the optics. So um, take that for what you will. In 1888, Zeiss dies, Carl Zeiss dies. And um, that to me was a very interesting point because up till that point, the company is extremely specialized in one area, which is uh, sort of uh, manufacturing of optical microscopes. Uh, But the Zeiss that we know now is so, so different to just doing that. And uh, that speaks volumes to what the employees of Carl Zeiss Arger start to introduce into the company. And um, Abe is a key, key figure in the, in the development of Zeiss into what it is today. One of the major advancements that Abe sets up is uh, the change of company ownership structure from it being a private corporation owned by individuals to a foundation that is owned totally by the employees. There's no single shareholder, there's no owner, uh, but the company direction and profit share of, of the entire structure of Zeiss is, is uh, determined by the employees themselves. And this one organizational shift really guarantees the survival of Carl Zeiss through the next century and a half. Uh, there's two world wars as well as a sociological shift between the East and West. This foundation stipulated how much effort should go into research and development, uh, what what bonus profits should be, how they should be dealt with. Uh, a lot of money was put back into the city of Jena. Um but it, it was specifically not set up to be a nonprofit. They wanted it to be a mm. profitable company that grew and, and endured. Another thing that is really unique about this foundational structure is that they outlined social reform as well. Um, they had employee comfort and um, working conditions at the forefront of, of the sort of the bylaws of the company. They had retirement plans as well as nine-hour workdays in place. Another very interesting thing that becomes uh, quite important for the next uh, phase of Zeiss is how the foundation uh, stipulates the center of operations for Carl Zeiss Arge. And uh, up till this point, um, Zeiss 
has been operating from Jena, which is in, uh, well, soon to be Eastern Germany. And uh, the foundational structure says that the headquarters of Zeiss must always remain in Jena. Uh, soon we find out, and if you really want to look into the history, there's fantastic content uh, on YouTube, as well as um, some amazing books that we can link in the show notes that really go into detail here. But during the next 20, 30 years, uh, Zeiss goes through some very, very tough times. In World War I and World War II, the main activities of Zeiss revolve around manufacturing military equipment. So that's rifle scopes, as well as uh, guiding optics for, for artillery and anything in between. And uh, especially in World War II, there is a strong state-owned takeover which forces Zeiss into a military manufacturing giant. Um, it can't be overlooked that Zeiss used forced labor camps to manufacture these military uh, inventions and optical equipment. After World War II, Zeiss was split in two. The East and the West clamored over the assets, and what resulted was uh, a pretty clean split of Zeiss between East and West Germany. The Americans took the top 120 department leaders uh, in sort of an Operation Paperclip style experiment, and they moved them to Oberkochen in West Germany. The Soviets took everything else, and in an effort to sort of appease both the workers as well as the West, they said they wouldn't plunder the Yerna site and move it to, to Russia, but within one year, they do. They take 93% of the company assets as well as the rest of the employees who, who sort of are in the top management and move them to Russia. Uh, that becomes a center of, of um, sort of Russian metrolo metrological and optical manufacturing. But the Yena site does survive. In fact, uh, it starts to thrive under state-owned uh, leadership. The foundational structure does sort of exist, but it has very, very strong guidelines from a state-owned uh, quota system as well as sort of mandatory production in, in a more socialist environment. Um, and that frames what the Yena site becomes. They become a monolithic, sort of uh, even megalithic, if that's in e even a word, um, manufacturing behemoth where they do so much of the manufacturing in-house from from formulating glass to grinding and lapping mirrors and, and, and lenses all the way to assembly and die cast, everything. They do everything in-house and it, they have over 20,000 employees by the fall of uh, the wall in 1989. The Yena site um, also has a very uh, strong shift towards optical equipment rather than the Oberkochen site, which seems to focus, um, as history sort of shows, uh, on the met metrological side. Um, the Jena side also starts to become a conglomerate of many, many similar types of companies that the state sort of tax on. Uh, one really interesting example is uh, Suhl, S-U-H-L. And some of you may know Sewell from uh, the measuring instruments that they manufacture. Sewell was very often seen as like the Soviet equivalent of West German Zeiss metrological 
uh, equipment and they they manufacture everything from gauge block testing and calibration equipment all the way to sort of micrometers and and nowadays they they do sort of uh the whole gambit of metrological endeavors so during this time there were the the two zeiss companies uh and they actually had to come to a agreement through a very long-standing legal battle the longest in east german history to when operating in the other's turf to have different names the west germans when selling in the eastern part of the world would go by just opton and the East Germans, when selling in the Western part of the world, would go by just Yenna. There's an interesting anecdote that I just heard last week. One of uh, the Zeiss salesmen uh, came by our shop, and he'd been working in the company since 1986, so before the Berlin Wall uh, sort of came down. And he was working in the West German side in Oberkochen. Uh, so that's where they make the, made the CMMs, uh, during that period. And what he saw was hilarious to me. Uh, walking through the factory, you could tell instantly which machines were going to uh, the, the Western side of the world and which machines were going to go to Russia and the Soviet side of the world um, just by the name. So it'd be Zeiss, 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 or Carl Zeiss, Zeiss, Zeiss. And then suddenly you'd see an Opton machine, exactly the same machine, just a different decal stuck on it. And that goes to show almost the pettiness that was revolving between the two sides of the same company. During this period, there was a very, very strong sentiment within the employee structure of Zeiss that one side of the Zeiss Corporation was getting favorable treatment. And to a certain extent, that was true. The Oberkochen side, or Carl Zeiss, uh, was a smaller company that was dedicated to building higher quality, lower volume products. Uh, and just by employee count, there was a very, very large difference. Zeiss uh, in, in East Germany was an, an order of magnitude, if not more, larger than than the West German side. Um, yet, despite that, the West German side was basically swallowing the East German company. And uh, in in the period between 1989 and 1991, uh, the two companies, as they became one, experienced major layoffs uh, and lots of sort of splitting of different company arms. One notable split was Genoptic or Yenoptic Carl Zeiss uh, splitting between Carl Zeiss Arger as well as uh, Yenoptic Gambeha. And Yenoptic currently is its own uh, corporation that uh, is incredibly linked to Carl Zeiss as well as uh, companies like Heidenhain and uh, Schott that are all sort of synonymous with high-level high technology in Germany. That almost brings us to present day Zeiss. The 30 years in between the reunification of the two companies and now Zeiss experiences massive growth in uh, the scientific instrumentation sectors as well as scanning electron microscopy and uh, optical equipment for uh, uh, photolithography machines. Uh, these are large ticket industries where they're, they're mainly B2B type products and uh, incredibly advanced ultra high tech uh, assemblies and and products despite that we as machinists or 
in the manufacturing industry, we probably know Zeiss still most famously for their coordinate measuring machines. And that has still remained a very large portion of Zeiss's portfolio. There are many highlights uh, in that period of history for Zeiss, um, but one for me, it's a personal highlight, is the Zeiss F25, um, released in the mid, mid-2000s. mid um, That machine was uh, probably the most accurate coordinate, micro-coordinate measuring machine on the market, and uh, it, was, it boasted a, a twin frame system a metrological frame as well as a kinematic frame, and it obeyed true ABBA principles. So in, in a roundabout way, this whole story sort of comes back to the, the, the starting part of the history of Zeiss. Um, and the F25 was, uh, the first time I saw it was at the K1 Kern manufacturing plant uh, in 2015, uh, 16 even. And uh, it was being used there to measure extremely accurate parts. Um, and uh, to give you an idea of the accuracy of the machine, its volumetric um, uncertainty was in the order of 0.2 microns, uh, which is a phenomenally small number for a coordinate measuring machine. And, uh, you know, as, as my 26th birthday rolled along and I was contemplating um, sort of life and entropy, uh, I was hit square in the face by an eBay find. I typed in size CMM on eBay and uh, almost like peering into the the forbidden bowels of a nuclear reactor, I saw a completely naked F-25 sitting in somewhere, someone's warehouse on eBay selling for about, I don't know, 6,000 US dollars or something like that. A machine that was probably... A, a high to yeah mid to high six figure machine in in the early 2000s when it was released was naked disassembled and selling for barely anything um what, what happened that these are no longer being able to be supported there's there's probably a few things and i'm not an authority on this but uh one thing i've heard from from kern who was using the machine is that the probe tips that were that were being used on the machine that they're, they're a special type of glass fiber probe um they they stop making those probes and they're extremely fragile and as soon as you know you break one you have to reorder and if you can't reorder well that system sort of decays very quickly but uh, i can imagine that the electronics that they were, they were using as well uh become harder and harder to ma- maintain as an owner of something made in that period um CNC machine that's you know very complex uh the electronic side of the machine is a liability it's not necessarily a bonus and uh drives and you know relays and all those sorts of things become harder and harder to to maintain one place i worked had some contour tracing machines for for checking you know a a profile on a part drags a stylus across of it one of them had a Windows XP machine hooked to it and made a DXF of the profile. And the other had a pantograph type arrangement that actually sketched mm. it onto paper vellum that you could then take over to the CMM. Guess which one's still running? <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. I've seen a lot of really pristine metrology tools kind of become mm. unused because of the computer attached to them. 
and a lot a lot of companies just don't want the project of retrofitting it or you know or or it's maybe not even an option yeah everyone's heard that story that sort of stereotype of of machine that needs like a fifty thousand dollar uh refurbishment um just to replace the computer and some electronic components and at that point you might as well buy a new machine um but what i also found interesting is that it's taken zeiss um the the cmm part of zeiss uh the better part of a decade almost a decade and a half um sorry that would be the better part of two decades decade and a half to get a machine on the market that sort of is in that accuracy range. And that's the Zeiss Xenos. Granted, it's a much, much larger machine. Um, the F25 is like fist-sized part capability and the Xenos is a full sort of uh, room, almost room-sized machine. Uh, and that that the Xenos is the first machine to come down into that sort of um, sub 0.3 micron territory. And to me, that indicates that the sort of the mechanical and uh, engineering physics principles that were obeyed by the F-25 uh, made it a very rigorous metrological machine. And uh, if the electronics were, you know, or the, the support was still there, I'm sure that someone would have snapped it up on eBay. Might be fun just to snap it up and take it apart for all the ceramic guides and granite squares and straight edges tell you what adam you buy it and i'll buy i'll buy the straight (laughs) edges off you (laughs) (laughs) we'll part it out so sad this segment was a very very rushed overview of an incredible company that um we we didn't really do justice in, in the last sort of 20 minutes, we tried to condense 180 years of history. So if you'd like to learn more about Zeiss and its history, um, head over to, to the Asianometry channel. And um, there's two fantastic videos on Zeiss. Actually, there's more than two, but two really good videos on the, on the history of Zeiss there. All right. So for the machine segment today, uh, we're going to be talking about probably another obsolete grinding technology. I seem to focus on that sort of stuff, but uh, we're going to be talking about optical profile grinders. Um, So right off the bat, I want to differentiate. This isn't a grinder that produces optics. This is a grinder which use optical imaging, either a comparator or digital to view the wheel and the workpiece as it's grinding. So uh, just quick reference, some of the brands we're going to be talking about are Wickman, Sheffield, Lowell, Amada, which also went by uh, Wasino, and Wida. And uh, so the core principle here is you have a optical or digital comparator that is aligned with the part, and the wheel is in that viewing zone now the wheels reciprocating up and down and the part is sitting on a three-axis stage but it doesn't move quickly only the wheels doing the stroking and so the part stays in focus on the viewing system the whole time and uh you can you can have a plotted drawing or if it's digital a dxf that 
compares the the part shape and the current stock situation and you can also view what the the edge condition of the wheel is like if you have a formed radius on the wheel is it still a nice smooth radius or are you getting like a wear notch uh and then so on the wheel side you have your part sitting on the three axis stage that's usually on the right and on the wheel side you have the wheel sitting on just a very high number of uh, angular axis. So the wheel is on a stroking slide that moves up and down, and that slide can tilt forward to grind draft angles, and it can also tilt side to side, and then the whole head can swivel so you could feed the wheel on mm. angles. Um, and uh, all told, there's, there's up to six axis of freedom for angles on the wheel side. And so there, there's usually two rotating stages um, and, and just gives you a, a, an ability to make some really interesting grind approaches when instead of just dealing with uh, a, a, a three axis grinder. And so the, the comparison might be if you're milling and you have an angled plane on a three axis mill, you might have to step it on with a ball mill. But on a five axis mill, you could just tilt the head and fly cut it or something like that. Um, and, and so it, it speeds things up, but also gives you a better surface by being able to tilt the wheel, the wheel to, to match the, the angle on the part. So in its heyday, this was strongly used in cutting tool grinding. So if you think back in the day of like cam driven screw machines, where the cutting tool doesn't necessarily move along the profile of the part. It's just plunging in and transferring a form from the tool to the part. Uh, a lot of these machines were grinding those forms. Uh, so like step turning tools or step reamers and step drills, uh, port tools, all of which would have been ground on these machines. And interestingly, most of the brands weren't in the business of building these machines to sell just these machines. They had something else that these machines were supporting. Mm. So Wickman had uh, uh, multi-spindle lathes and that they built their optical grinders to be able to sell a machine to make the cutters for their lathes. Uh, Sheffield uh, had a, a big interest in crush grinding. And so crush grinding is where you have a form made out of carbide and you feed that into the wheel and the wheel then takes that shape. It has a special bond, so it won't cut the carbide. The grains will just break out. And so you could very cost-effectively make custom forms for a wheel, put that form onto the wheel, and then grind your part. And so Sheffield had their grinders to support making forms for their grinders. Uh, Amada is big into uh, presses and uh, so that, that was there to support their, their metal fabrication lines. And so it, it, it's kind of interesting to see that all of these grinders are offered to support the, that company's other products. But uh, you still see some use in punch and die applications. And so one of the, the things that these do well is the ability to set the reciprocation on an angle means you can put a back taper into a profile you're grinding. And so there's this technique in die making called a split ground die. <clears throat> so if we think about a punch and a die, if we take the lower half and split it in half, 
we can grind each half and make whatever shape we need to make versus having a wire EDM do it. Um, and there's some lore within our industry that a ground die section performs better than a wire EDM one. And I think at one point that was a certainty. I, th- I believe though that, that EDM finishes have advanced to the point where if there still is a benefit to a ground edge, it may not be justified by the cost of doing that technique. But uh, it's it's kind of hung on that uh, that idea. So with the the ability to to grind on an angle very easily like that, you can you can make your your die sections that maybe need a degree of back taper, and then you put these two halves together. Mm-hmm. And you, the reason you still see this is sometimes dissections are too thin to wire EDM, like the the slot. Uh, you know, if you have like a, a hundred micron slot, there's not a lot of wire guys who want to do that or can actually measure that easily and effectively. Whereas if you split that in half, it's very easy to measure that depth uh, from the this part line to the the slot and see and see what size the slot will be when it's assembled. Um, So that's why you still kind of see it hanging around. And then there are some die applications using ceramic. And so wire EDM is not an option there. Uh, But for the most part, I think wire EDM has kind of made it obsolete in the the die world. But... uh, some of the other things these things could do well is the the ability to swivel the head meant you could set it on the appropriate angle to grind threads. So you need a rotary axis that's timed to the x-axis travel, but that was offered on a few brands. And uh, when compared to thread grinding on a traditional cylindrical grinder, you have to adjust the the angle of the the V on the wheel to match the pitch. It's not necessarily exactly a 60 degree thread. It might be like a degree extra and a degree less on one side, depending on how steep that pitch is. Um, because the, the wheels kind of running into the pitch as it screws around. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 And so with the ability to tilt the head, you could have your super abrasive wheel always with a 60 degree V and you just tilt the head to build in the clearance you need. And so it's it's easier to go from thread to thread to thread than resting the profile each time. And what about stop or shoulder ground punch designs? That's still uh, w- something that these would be good at, but I think grinders like mine have taken a lot of that work away. But so like a stop or a shoulder ground punch is where you have a very, very delicate profile. And if you were to wire EDM it, it just wouldn't wouldn't uh, be robust enough. It'd be too delicate. So you put that profile on the end of a a much thicker piece of carbide, and you only grind in like halfway down. And so now you have a a nice hunk of carbide that you can mount in your punch holder. It's easy to hang on to. Um, I'm trying to think of like a household part that you might see like a real delicate shape in. So uh, are you familiar with microplane punches or uh, microplane graders? Oh, yep. 
like cooking instruments that yeah yeah so that's like a little u shape and then they fold that tab down mm. to make the cutting edge of the grater uh, and so that might be a good application to stop grind because uh, that U shape, uh, if you were to cut that U out of a block of carbide, it would be really difficult to mount in the punch holder. It'd be really expensive. Uh, but to just take a little stick of carbide that has maybe a tapped hole in the back or like a, a notch you, you key it into the punch holder with, and then you grind that U shape onto the end of it, that's that's not that big of a deal. And that's something that Wiredium cannot do. Mm. Uh, a forming grinder does quite well. And something like an optical forming grinder doesn't necessarily have an edge over a CNC grinder in terms of speed. Like a CNC optical grinder is going to cut it just as fast as a CNC forming grinder like mine. But it does have an advantage in terms of the feedback loop. Mm. This is where these things really shined in the day is you have this real-time feedback loop where you don't have to take the part off the machine, measure it, and adjust. As you're machining it, you can make the adjustments on the fly and compensate for wheel wear as it's happening. You know, most of what I, what I do when I'm grinding is measure. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. a it's an iterative feedback. And and I, I'd be real curious to spend a significant amount of time on one of these and see what the the difference in workflow is like. But some of the other disadvantages, like when you compare it to wire, is the biggest of these machines only has 155 millimeters of stroke. Mm. So you're 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 kind of limited in part height where some wire machines can do enormously long parts. And uh not that that's a huge deal in tool and die, but you know, I'm sure there's something where it might shine over a conventional surface grinder is these usually have very high RPM spindles. So back to that shoulder grinding where you're not taking the profile all the way through, there's usually an area, a long radius that matches the wheel's diameter where it kind of needs to lead out. And so if you're using like a seven inch wheel, that section could be quite Mm. long and it's problematic at times. And so people who do a lot of stop grinding or shoulder grinding tend to force themselves into smaller and smaller wheels. Like four inch is very common, but you might even want to go down to three in a lot of applications. And so by having like a 12 or a 20,000 RPM spindle, that helps you out a lot. What kind of started all this is a very, very nice condition. One came up locally. It's been well taken care of. It's in great shape. I could use it periodically, but not enough to change my business. And I just really want it. But <laughs> uh, it's a good thing I don't have a lot of space. You know, I, <laughs> I, have, I have one more machine's worth of space in my shop. And if I'm going to use it up, it's going to be on something that can make me a lot of money. And <laughs> it's probably not, not this. Uh, so, but they're just so fascinating to, to, lo- to watch run. So, so something that can make you a lot of money, like a WS11 Something like yeah. that, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. More obsolete grinders. But uh, I don't know. So I thought maybe just talking about them on the podcast might uh, get it out of my system. But uh, I, I did a job recently, and I it was all done under digital microscope. And uh, having a 50x view of your what's happening on your part as it's happening is really nice. And, uh, you know, I do some fiddly little grinding projects every now and then. And the, 
I think it would be handy, but not handy enough to justify its footprint. I love machines that have feedback loops built into them. Um, I can imagine that running cylindrical grinders with those MARPOS systems that measure the diameter of the part as it's being ground, that seems like a brilliant way of, of, of developing a stable process. And this seems like the same thing, just in a different sort of part shape and part size. Um, we, we, we do a little bit of decorative grinding and, uh, the the feedback loop for us is purely just how it looks how like the optical uh, appearance and our um <laughs> our our get around especially after talking with you about optical profile grinders was to stick the cheapest nastiest video microscope on the grinder and and have some sort of feedback loop but when i sent that to you adam i think i think that like the disgust and the <laughs> tangible sort of um, hate uh, was, yeah, it was very palpable through 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 your responses. <laughs> well, we found you a pristine Wickman optical profile grinder in Australia. You know, I, I solved the Amazing. problem for you, but you went your route. So you heard it here first. Um, Adam's going to get an optical profile grinder if I get that Wickman um, in Australia, but knowing the reach and the veracity of our viewers in this podcast, they're all going to be gone by the time this episode airs. Oh, so, sure. um, yeah. I think probably my favorite thing from these is like kind of the, some of the holdover pieces of technology. So the, the ones that use a analog comparator, they need a plotted drawing to compare to on vellum. Mm-hmm. And you've, I think, mentioned how you used your laser printer and just kind of slowly scaled the drawing till it was in spec. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, Wida has built a extremely high accuracy printer to solve that problem. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, I just like that that's a thing. Like you can get a ball screw <laughs> printer and uh, <laughs> just so you can make a drawing, which you then put on your, your machine. So. But uh, Wida now offers a machine that's all digital and takes DXF, uh, as does Amada. But those two are the last two companies to offer uh, these optical grinders. And uh, I, I, I don't know how much longer they'll have uh, selling these, but uh, they're, they're just so unique to watch run. I think there was a video, a showcase reel, or may- maybe you linked it to me, where um, there was a digital microscope solution, but some fella had put uh, a, like a plotted, um, drawn overlay instead of a DXF over the the digital screen. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, and then they had like a microscope to like oh, yes. to zoom in on the digital screen. There's a, <laughs> a, a eye loop uh, that's on like this xy track so you can see the screen better and i was like couldn't you just digitally zoom in on the area you wanted enhance enhance yeah. enhance <laughs> yeah it's it's uh it's, it's neat how like you know the the loop to look at the drawing i'm sure was done for years and mm. how that just kind of carried over to the digital side of things <laughs> So Adam, what was your precision problem? Uh, this was about two weeks ago. 
we got a project uh, and it required some very small V grooves. They're about 50 microns deep uh, and double that on width roughly. Uh, and they were, they were about 200 millimeters long and then there were 3,200 to make. And so, wow. And it added up to like over half a kilometer of just this profile needed put into parts. And, uh, I knew that micromilling probably wasn't the way to go because they wanted a super consistent depth uh, across. There's 800 on a plate, and they wanted you know slot one and slot 800 to be mm. to be very comparable. And so, micromilling. I looked at the cycle time. You know it, it, that small is going to be a lot of RPM. And I thought, boy, even mm. with you know my Mori, there's there's going to be some thermal drift. I didn't necessarily want to do that. Um, and so I, I kind of instantly came to the conclusion that shaping these was probably going to be the best bet. Um, and I, I got there just because like the V profile was so small, even with a, uh, 25 micron ball mill, it was going to leave a bit too much of a corner radius down in the, the root of the V. And so with shaping, I was able to to grind and lap a carbide V form to pretty much a, a razor point and and get a fully defined V profile uh, and not worry about you know spindle run out and thermal drift. Mm. And so then there was a the question of where do I shape these? Do I try to do it in the Mori? Uh, and I, I settled on the Parker Majestic CNC grinder and for a couple reasons, but mainly it's just it's an easier platform to attach things to. And uh, on top of that, it's a hydrodynamic way. I, I thought I'd get a little nicer finish versus a, a ball way machine like the Mori. Um, I don't have a AB comparison, but it just, it seemed like the better of my machine tool options to do this on. Um, and so I started playing around. I wanted to do a couple test pieces and, and figure the process out on the Parker. But uh, I made like a, a C-clamp kind of deal to kind of secure itself around the, the neck of the spindle. And then I had to, my, my lapped piece of carbide. Uh, it had a slot and mounted in there. Um, and so that was all kind of went together pretty quickly. I did that on a Saturday morning. And then I, I just started grooving and seeing how fast can I get this in terms of, uh, uh, feed, feed rate. And, uh, I, I was pleasantly surprised. You can throw a pretty decent amount of speed at it and maintain a nice quality. Um, but I mean, even at, uh, I think I was going 150 feet per minute. Um, that's nothing for, it was brass, you know, that's nothing cutting carbide and brass. It, it, it mm. shouldn't have an issue with that. But, uh, so, you know, there's there's no no burr problem, but uh, even at that feed rate, it still took like almost five hours per plate. Wow. But uh, since the spindle isn't running mm. on the machine, there, there was no real thermal issues. I didn't have to like get the machine plateaued thermally. Um, you know, had I tried to grind that, that was also going to be a problem. I initially looked at grinding it. Um, I would have had to grind with the coolant on. Mm. And so coolant temperature drift was probably going to be an issue. Um, I have 
I have heated coolant. Like I keep it heated to 68 mm. in the winter or 20 C, but in the summertime it's, uh, it's not chilled yet. Like that's not been something because my grinding cycles are so mm. short. So that's not something I've had to address. Uh, but like on a five hour cycle, you know, if you see a little temperature ramp up, you're going to have some issues. Um, so by not grinding, I didn't have to run coolant. I just had some oil I brushed on top and I let it just kind of chip away at it for five hours. And I got these really amazing looking surfaces, um, really, really stable process overall. I was very, very pleased with it. I think that's one of my favorite things about shaping is as soon as you turn the spindle off, everything just gets better. Yeah. I don't, I don't know why they don't make shapers a thing again. It's just get rid of the spindles. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I was very impressed with, um, with how, how clean everything looked, especially as you were viewing it under the scope. Um, it looked very, very stable in terms of chip formation and how the bird edges, well, no bird, no bird edges. Um, and that's a testament, I think, of how well you prepared the tool as well. Yeah, lapping certainly helped. Um, I'd like to try it again with a, a diamond tool, um, but I, looking around to get a diamond tool that sharp is actually kind of, uh, you got to shop around for a vendor. Um, so... And maybe if I do it again, it just stays with carbide because honestly, the same piece of carbide cut all 3,200 mm. grooves and, you know, does it need to yeah. improve? So I, I am intrigued by doing, uh, see if I can get a diffraction surface going. That's the next, next, uh, Demoth product. <laughs> yeah. It was just, just starting to throw some rainbows. Like I was, mm -hmm. you know, every, every now and then you'd get a, like a nice pop of one, but the profile wasn't quite what it needs to be to be a diffraction uh, is a little too deep of a V. So maybe if I, maybe if I have a boring weekend, I'll, I'll play with that. But yeah, if you have like a lot of micro profiles that are otherwise straight, consider just turning the spindle off and shaping it. We're going to see a massive uptick in uh, blown up spindles after this comment. <laughs> I will say there was one interesting tidbit. So uh, initially I tried to do this. The spacing on them was metric. I run inch machines. I'm kind of one foot in each Ooh. camp. You know, yeah, everybody's annoyed. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, the issue I ran into was that of like a rounding error. So I was initially going to try just, you know, I had like a real basic program kind of step down this many times, feet mm -hmm. across. And then I was going to do a uh, incremental move and loop 800 times. Well, my Parker Majestic is a five decimal place machine. And that uh, rounding error mm. on the, what would have been the six decimal, it accumulated enough to be a problem over 800 loops. Wow. And so I ended up having to, to do the whole thing in cam and each line was its own mm -hmm. position, uh, because a, a looping approach just gave me too much accumulated er error and put the last, the last line in the wrong position by a surprising mm -hmm. amount. Um, so yeah, like when, when you repeat something 800 times, you have to you have to kind of watch out for those incremental buildup of errors. And how did how did the cam handle that many lines? Was it did you do it at infusion or? Yeah, yeah, it wasn't too bad. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it 
I, I don't even remember the file size, but it, I mean, the actual cut is just feed down, move over, mm. feed up. Um, and it did that. I took uh, rough pass, finish pass, and then I sparked out. Well, I don't know if spark out is <laughs> correct. I uh, spring pass. There we go. Yeah. Um, and I, I actually kind of debated on the necessity of the spring pass. Uh, it didn't look like a lot was coming off. Um, but it's kind of one of those things. It's like, you know what? This is doing what I need it to do. Um, and it's not like I was standing there all five hours. Mm. So, um, I just let it be. What was your precision problem? My precision problem, um, originates around some dodgy workmanship from, uh, a company called Hardinge. Um, it's, there's going to be a bit of sledging. Uh, actually, it's not that bad. I mean, it's bad, but it's not terrible. We ordered some uh, sort of custom long nose, sort of extended reach collets, micro collets from Hardinge a while ago. And uh, if you can imagine something similar to an eight millimeter collet from a watchmaker's lathe, itty bitty collet with a 0.4 millimeter bore. And, um, we got these collets about two years ago and I didn't really think too much of it. Uh, we paid a pretty penny for them. Those sort of one-off customs. They don't keep that sort of thing on hand, especially it was a, it was a reasonably custom extended nose length too. Um, our citizen R04, which is, you know, what's accepting these collets, uh, is a bit picky about how, how close the sub spindle can get to the main spindle. And so you need a bit of an extended reach sometimes especially with small parts. And um, I didn't really look at the collets when they arrived uh, too closely. Externally, they looked fine. But then two years later, uh, as in last week, we started a project where we needed to pick off a 0.4 millimeter diameter on, on the lathe. Uh, so as you part off, you're holding onto the, onto the part with the back spindle with this extended reach collet. And I tell you what, uh, we were having a bear of a time trying to figure out why the parts looked like garbage. They were all sort of crated and and my initial thought was, okay, maybe we're not holding onto them tightly enough. There's a adjustable pressure uh, system on the back spindle. So I thought, okay, let's ramp it up and grab onto the part a bit tighter. Maybe it's spinning in the collet as it's being parted off. It's a very small diameter, weird things can happen. Uh, but that didn't really seem to solve the problem. In fact, we were already at the max um, max uh, uh, clamping pressure. So we said, okay, maybe it's the inverse. Maybe something weird is happening um, and it's like galling when we're clamping down it too tight. Let's drop the pressure again. Meanwhile, this cratered finish is still persisting. And uh, at one point I say, okay, let's pull the collet out. Surely something's damaged. Maybe there's a part stuck in there. The, the part size is so small, you can't even see what's happening. Maybe there's a part stuck in the leaves of the collet and it's not closing properly or something like that. So we pull the collet out and uh, when they were making the collet, they, it looks like they just either either sunk, sunk the profile in or wire cut the profile and they left the most atrocious sort of single pass, no refinement finish on the bore and everything else that was being cut by the erosion. And uh, here I am saying wire EDM finishes are surpassing <laughs> ground. Well, apparently, if you're hard inch, they're not. <laughs> so it was really quite bad. 
And uh, I, I, my guess is that they sunk the profile in rather than wire cut it. And uh, what was happening was that the, the cratered EDM finish was actually stamping the part, even with the lowest pressure, it was deforming the part and leaving the finish on, on sort of replicating the finish onto the, onto the diameter. That's just grip texture. Yeah, grip texture. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the precision problem originates with how do you fix that in like a day? You, know, you can't order another collet. You can't complain. Or if you do, you know, it's 12 weeks out for another collet. Um, so we decided to, to lap the ID, the bore of the collet outside of the, the lathe. And um, that worked incredibly well. So we just turned up a little brass um, pin, 0.4 millimeters in diameter, and sort of attached to like 10 mil brass stock. So it was easy to hold. And with some sort of five or maybe even six, I don't know what it was, maybe six micron diamond, we slowly lapped the ID of this bore. But the tricky part was sort of holding this collet. It's a weird looking collet. And, and we didn't really want to do it in the R04 and fill up the di- fill up the machine with diamond. Um, so we had to hold it in the three-jaw chuck and conveniently each one of the jaws pressed down on each one of the leaves of the collet and we got something resembling a close sort of uh, clamping, clamping action. And uh, that was enough that uh, we could improve the finish so it stopped stamping the part. But we could you could so- still see those about five or six microns of um, run out that we'd introduced or that was already there that we just copied. Um, in saying that, that gave me a lot of ideas of how to, uh, how to get high quality collets quite quickly um, by doing this lapping process in-house and just you know receiving whatever comes in and almost mand- mandatorily lapping all of the collets uh, because it does become a problem for soft parts, um, even with really good ground finishes. You can see the lay of the grind getting transferred into something like brass or plastic, and uh, lapping the collet seems like a good solution. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you can come up with a, a simple enough fixture and you know do it in your little tool room lathe or whatever. And once you have that that headstock to hold the collet as it's lapped, or mm. you know it's probably pretty straightforward process at that point. Yeah. Surprisingly straightforward. I thought it was going to be challenging and the ball was going to sort of move around a bunch, but it's so controlled, especially with a fine diamond that, uh, you, you, your feedback loop by, you know, even just taking it out and looking it under the microscope is very, very tight. It takes a long time to make a, a significant mistake. I'm always very careful how I hold parts for second ops you know, like the more kind of fancy stuff I make because I can't or don't want to at least transfer Mm. work holding texture into the part. And just, it's amazing. Like even if you're running a softer jaw, like the, the imprint that can be left on the part. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the one thing I hate about soft jaws is that, you know, it might look fine, but you could have a few little tiny, tiny pieces of swarf that just embed into the aluminium. And, you know, you ruin parts upon parts before you can sort of rectify or try to figure out what's happening. And 
thank you for listening to episode 17 of the Precision Microcast. Uh, Adam and I had a great time recording this. Uh, definitely some meaty topics with Zeiss and the optical profile grinding, as well as the precision problem. That was a lot of fun to, to chat about. Uh, scribing is definitely the cool thing to do now. Spindle Zero is, uh, is always better than Spindle On. Um, in any case, head over to Instagram and check us out uh, on the Precision Microcast, but also Adam the Machinist, as well as um, NH Micro or Nicholas Hacker Watch for my accounts. Thank you once again, and you'll hear from us soon. Bye.